1: Welcome to Amtower Off-Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with a longtime friend and what is this, Doug, second or third time you're on the show? I think it's my second. Second appearance, uh, Doug Mash-Curry, Vice President, GM of GovLoop. Welcome to the show, man.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: We we were on a call for Government Marketing University couple of weeks back, and you did a presentation on uh, something everybody, absolutely everybody needs to know about now, and that is uh, picking a virtual platform.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, when you're looking at virtual platforms with the world going virtual now, uh, and, and especially in our space, Mark, of making that quick transition from in-person events to virtual happened quick happened overnight for a lot of us <laughs> and you know trying to, to figure out this world quickly you know because we're all so patient that we can just take our time being sarcastic yeah virtual platforms can be very important and we've been lucky enough that at w, we've been focusing on virtual events especially larger scale virtual events you know anywhere from 500 to 4,000 people the last six years. So we've had a lot of time and energy spent on looking at platforms and a lot of lessons learned is kind of where we've spent our time. So the pivot wasn't as hard for us, but it's challenging. It's challenging for everybody.
1: Yeah, it it is. And it's uh, an immediate challenge. It's not this, you know, kick it down the road kind of thing for anybody right now who is producing their own or still doing events with uh, with companies like GovLoop. You know, the, the thing about your presentation on uh, on the ideation call for Government Marketing University was the apparent depth that you've gone to, and not just, you know, to develop your own platform, but it seems to be a continual learning process for you. So start us off, walk us through, what it was like before 2020 than uh, when the poop hits the fan.
0: Yeah, so I, I think, you know, there was a lot of lessons learned in, in, in virtual events. And when I say virtual events, I'd be, I'm talking larger scale beyond a single mm-hmm. webinar. I'm saying virtual events. And, you know, what we've learned over time is the, the most important thing to remember is who's your audience, who's your community, and who are you engaging with? And if you can keep that in mind, you're off to a good start. You know, we obviously serve the government community and their needs and uh, access to technology is very different than, say, the commercial world. And our number one lesson learned in the beginning was not necessarily all the bells and whistles are worth it. Um, If people can't access it, if they can't easily get onto your platform and find this programming, it doesn't matter how good it looks, no one's going to be able to use it. And so, you know, what we've learned over years is platform provider that doesn't require a lot of downloads is easier Mm -hmm. for the government community, you know, given access into their systems, you know, video can be important, but there's also uh, a lot of challenges behind video, Um, streaming, especially people from home now, can they, do they have the bandwidth? Are they getting a good user experience? So I think keeping the audience in mind is important. You know, how you present content uh, is really important. You know, right now, we're talking about pivoting from in-person events to virtual, and you have to recognize up front that virtual is different than in-person. You, you cannot create an in-person event in the virtual world. You can educate users in a virtual world, you can engage them, but it's not going to take the place of an in-person event. That one-to-one networking, that in-person can happen in a virtual environment is very different. So I think, you know, the biggest thing I always remind people is, Let's talk about what you want to accomplish versus can you convert my in-person event to a virtual event? I think you have to understand the medium uh, and understand the target audience and how to deliver that content.
1: Yeah. The bells and whistles thing. I've, uh, I've been invited to speak on a variety of different platforms and I always request if they aren't going to do it themselves, a rehearsal not the day of, but like, you know, the week before. So I can make sure that I've downloaded everything I need to download that. I know how to forward the slides myself. If it's that kind of a gig, Uh, if it's just a talking gig, I want to make sure, you know, the sound quality is good. Some people have made fun of me because you've seen this. I wear a headset and I wear a headset because it's a gamer headset with a pretty good microphone. And my computer microphone is not as good as this gamer headset. So whatever I do these things, I'm, I'm, you know, got my earmuffs on, right? No earbuds, the full gig. So I'm not quite sure how to say this, but I've been disappointed by a number of platforms in the functionality. And I don't know if it's because of the bells or whistles or what, but um, there's only a handful that actually have been approved by FedRAMP. Does that
0: impact your decision on what you use? Um, not, not specifically, Mark. Um, obviously, we can use non-FedRAM um, compliant platforms. But what we want to make sure in any platform we're using, when we're serving government, is that there are a certain level of accessibility for all users. And, you know, sometimes by uh, incorporating more accessibility, you might lose some bells and whistles, but it's worth it you know, we want to have a platform that's available to as many users as possible. Um, We're not going to use platforms that have known security risks. Uh, We also want to use platforms that have catered to a government audience before. I don't want to use a platform to be the first time going to a government audience, given the the intricacies and just the the, the, um, dispersed nature of our audience. So um, some of the things that are included in FedRAMP are important. They don't necessarily have to be FedRAMP approved for us to use them. However, um, you know, we've worked with some government agencies that look for our recommendations, um, and that is a requirement, and we've put them in that direction. I just think at the end of the day, it's, you know, you mentioned earlier, like rehearsals. Virtual is less forgiving than in person. And the last thing you want is your speaker going, I can't find the button to advance my slide. Uh, Who's talking now? Am I on? That all has to be handled in in multiple rehearsals. You know, there's a charming nature to some of those types of questions in person. Online, it gets very frustrating. Uh, So I think, you know, virtual is convenient, but it also requires a level of discipline uh, of rehearsals, speaker management. You know, you're a very um, vocal speaker and very animated. Uh, Not all speakers are that. So kind of coaching the speakers, you know, we tell them, even though if, if it's just audio only, stand while you present, use your hands. Even though people can't see it, it brings out the emotion of your presentation. I think that's super important in a virtual environment.
1: Yeah. So before 2020, we we really didn't have uh, a massive need for this, but the deployment was there. You guys, uh, you know, companies like uh, Peg Hoskey, uh, Mike Smoyer does a number of these things. But what was your uh, take on how companies responded? I mean, how many events were initially canceled and then reannounced for, you know, two months down the road, but it'll be virtual? So were, were you advising any of those companies? Did they use you? It just boggles my mind how quickly some of the companies reacted and did well.
0: Yeah, I think it's a testament to the strength of the market we're in and, and the sophistication of, of our marketing community. But yeah, we, we were asked a lot of questions uh, up front as both an advisory capacity, but also as a supplier. You know, we talked a lot about platforms. I shared a lot about platforms we've used in the past and the pros and cons of them. I'm very clear to say there, in my mind, there's not a clear number one. All the different providers out there have pros and cons, so it really depends on the type of event you want to do to really define that up front. Uh, we've worked with a lot of folks uh, you know, it, it, starting in March that had to convert their events to virtual. Uh, we've increased the number of virtual events we're doing. We've also come up with new ways to do virtual events in different formats. You know, For someone that has a round, an in-person roundtable uh of the type of event versus someone that's having uh, an event for 200 people in person to convert those virtually they we be very different content experiences and it's not a one-size-fits-all so we've come up with new ideas i think the biggest thing i've learned you know since march 2020 which seems so long ago but it's not is breaking down what do you need out of this event First and foremost, whether it's virtual, it's in person, what are you trying to accomplish? Let's work backwards from there to define that. Then the platform will pick itself by doing that. On the platform provider side, you know, since March, I've seen.
1: Hold that yeah. thought. Let's go to the platform provider after the break. Okay. Uh, we need to take one. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Doug Mashkuri of GovLoop and we'll return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Doug Mash Curry of GovLoop. You can find him on LinkedIn, M A S H uh, K U R I, Doug Mash Curry, or you can find him at GovLoop, govloop.com. Um, so, platform providers.
0: Yeah, there's a lot. And there seems to be more every day. (laughs) I
1: was going to ask about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, there's a decent amount. And we talked in the prior segment that I I don't, my personally don't think there's a clear cut. Number one, we work across three to four different providers at any one time. And I, I think it's really important to do a deep dive with each provider prior to engaging with them. And, You know, to start with, have your desired event spec'd out, what you need specifically, what does the agenda look like? Have that prepared for when you talk to a platform provider, because there's a lot of self-service models, full service models, what comes with support, what doesn't come with support. It's critical to ask these questions up front. You know, to me, one of the most important questions is, have you served a government audience before? And how did that go? Understanding the pricing models, um, I've seen tremendous price increases. Um, I was going to ask
1: <laughs> about that, too. <laughs> yes, yeah,
0: since March, I've seen, uh, you know, I've looked at past proposals from certain providers from a year ago to now and, you know, five to 10x change. There's a limited capacity, and I think they know that. You know, they can only serve so many events a day.
1: Right. I've I've heard that the inventory for a lot of these things is approaching zero.
0: Yeah, it is. And, you know, you have to be careful and you should be asking those questions. What is your capacity and how close you are, uh, especially when it comes to event days uh, and being clear on that. So, like I said, you know, at the end of the day, the provider and the platform have to meet my needs or meet your needs but it's really important to understand the breadth of their, their service. If they say it's easy, just it's, it's, you know, turnkey, ask a lot of questions what turnkey means. And most importantly, Mark, to me, it's that live day support. What does that actually mean? So if I've launched a virtual event and it's 10 3 AM and uh, nothing's working, am I calling somebody? Am I calling a hotline? Am I sending an email? I have 500 people that are here. How do I serve them immediately? So I think understanding that level of support is super important. Have,
1: have you been in the situation where literally you have X number of hundred people sitting and there's there's no there there?
0: Uh, I've had it in the past. And it, it's a memory that anytime we hit start, uh, I, I'm very nervous. Not recently, because we're, we're asking the right questions on support. Uh, we've had it in the past where there was a hotline. Mm-hmm. Uh, you call the hotline, you got a voicemail. Uh, Jeez. So, so we kindly asked 500 people to hold on till someone returns our voicemail. Um, so that goes to my point of asking these questions up front and clarifying it, because you don't want to discover that on event day what support really means.
1: No, um, so give me. Uh, do you have a short laundry list of vetting questions that you put in front of these people? I know you you, you uh, ask if they've done government before. The pricing model would probably be among the last questions. Certainly important. Yeah, uh, the support questions, but but what, what kinds of functionality are you looking for for different types of events? So for the, those 500 plus people events, is it one big room kind of thing where there is a series of people talking to the entire audience? And if so, what kind of support do you require
0: there? Yes. Yeah, so I think some of the questions you want to ask to to better vet uh, a provider is, you know, one Knowing your specific agenda up front. So saying, hey, I'm gonna need a conference hall, I'm gonna need a networking hall, I'm gonna have 14 sessions throughout the day. This many will be concurrent. So the best you can spec that out up front is gonna be important. You know, we talked about asking if they served a government audience, asking about does the platform require any end user downloads. That's super important. Doesn't mean it can't work, but you should understand that up front understanding the scalability of the platform. Are you just a virtual event provider and not a webinar provider? Do you do both? Some providers only do one, others do both. Important to ask about live semi-live and pre-recorded sessions, especially now that we're using video more, most providers are saying pre-record video sessions, which, which I wholeheartedly agree with Mm -hmm. understanding. Can you do that? Can I submit pre-recorded sessions? I do live sessions and then semi live, so it's pre-recorded, but you act like it's live, and you have a live Q and A at the end of that recording. So understand that piece. You know, multimedia capabilities. How do you handle video? Can you have multiple cameras, uh, multiple talking heads at one time? How does that work? And then once again, the support. So not just the support on the day of, but building the environment. Do I build it as the vendor? Um, you know who's building this? What support is available to me? And I think last is really important: is can you send me examples? You know, everyone's demo looks great. You know, there's never a problem in a demo when they demo the platform for you. But I want to see someone's live event. I want to see a client and how they've uh, applied their brand to your platform and how did it work? Um, and then the last thing is kind of license versus this is a one-time fee. A lot of platforms now are going more the software as a service that you buy a license and it's for 12 months uh, versus my one-time one fee for this event. There's pros and cons to that on a license. If it is a license, you should be asking, can I do multiple shows throughout the year on this license? Because if you can, there, there's, there's a, a strong cost savings there for you as a virtual event provider if they can do that. But asking that up front. And then itemized pricing because there's a base cost and a lot of that support we talk about sometimes extra uh, if you're doing pre-records and then there's an extra cost there. So really getting that itemized cost list and apply that to your event spec would be important.
1: Okay. What about the, the scalability? Say you're planning uh, for 250 people and all of a sudden you have 400. Are, are the platforms flexible in this? Do they cap?
0: Some do. Um, usually that's outlined in your contract. And I, I think, you know, some will say like up to a thousand live concurrent viewers, up to 400. The question there that you really want to be clear on is okay, for my pricing, it's up to 400 concurrent users. The second question that is, can we scale beyond that? And what is the cost to scale beyond that? A lot of contracts will say then each additional 50 users is X. But what you want to understand that is, if there's an extra fee, that's great, but are there certain limitations technologically that we cannot exceed a thousand? Like, will a platform break at that point. So understanding the cost and then just the, 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 the true capacity on that platform will be important.
1: Okay. How, how are you uh, vetting the providers?
0: My main kind of benchmarks are, you know, does it fit the needs of my events, my specific needs? Because, you know, I'm doing a, we're doing a two-day training in August, a two-day virtual summit. And this one requires a lot of concurrent sessions. Um, There'll be, I think at any time, five concurrent sessions going. One provider I was talking to said, the max we can do is two concurrent sessions. So right away, they're out. I, you know, I need five. I can't change the event around, so I think it's, does it meet the spec of my specific event and agenda, one. Number two for vetting is I really feel strongly that they've had served a government audience prior. Mm-hmm. And then number three is cost. And I, I don't mean cheapest, um, but understanding the cost structure and does it, is it flexible enough that if we have to scale up, to your point earlier, does it allow for me to do that? And what's the cost to scale up and what's the cost to support it?
1: All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off-Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with my friend Doug Mashcurry, whom I've known now for a way long time. We won't go there. Uh, We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off-Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Doug Mashcurry from GovLoop. Uh, Doug's here because he's been involved in events for a long time, a very long time. Uh, And he did a presentation at Government Marketing University's uh, ideation call a couple weeks back, and it was it was really it was like fifteen minute presentation, man. And you knocked it out of the park like three times. So let's talk about the event composition itself. So just take it.
0: Yeah. So you know when I look at like a, a event composition. I really think, you know, in, in planner terms, it's, it's content strategy uh, in a virtual event environment. So, you know, you want to look at what's the right composition for the audience. And that goes to speakers, types of speakers you want to get for a virtual uh, environment is going to be important. Obviously, you need thought leaders. That goes without saying. You need people that can really project. Um, sometimes it's audio only. Sometimes it's video and audio nobody wants to sit and watch just a talking head with not a lot of motion and animation and... and,
1: and, and energy.
0: <laughs> energy. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. So speakers are important. Presentations, you know, do you want to do more panel type presentations, slide presentations? What's the right way to drive more engagement in a virtual environment? I'm a fan of a good mix of both in a virtual summit. You can have some, you know, longer PowerPoint decks if they're, if they're interesting and you can get through them quick. You don't want death by PowerPoint. But I think having virtual panels is actually very engaging because that's gonna generate more questions from the audience. Um, that's gonna get that, that engagement with the audience going in the community. So I think that's super important. Other components of, of a virtual summit is some type of exhibit hall or, or content resource area. Virtual platforms are great for content dissemination and content syndication. Everyone you work with has white papers, case studies. This is a great place that you can get it in a single place in a virtual environment. It's very easy for the viewers to go in there, click they want to download this, it goes right into either a virtual briefcase or whatever kind of collection mechanism there is. But it's a great way to get information out in in a very contextual manner. You'll see some virtual summits do um, virtual vendor booths, more like an exhibit floor. Um mm-hmm. uh, we've done it both ways. Give you a little truth time here. We have found when we organize all of our content by topic versus vendor, our vendors are going to get more downloads and more engagement with their content because that's how viewers go. And they're not looking for every vendor. They're looking for cloud-specific content, cyber-specific content, AI-specific content. They don't want to go to 10 booths to find AI content. So that's a preference. We share our best practices and we share the metrics that go with downloads and and, and user activity. Uh, but if we want to do vendor booths, we can do that. So those are decisions you want to look out up front. Is you know what is the composition of this? You know you need your conference hall. You want a resource center, whether that's vi- uh, vendor booths or just content kind of libraries top- by topic. Uh, you want some level of a networking area, and that could be. An open chat that could be, you know, a, a side panel Q&A, but something where people can gather, but you need some type of motivating factor in that area. If you just say go to the networking and network, no one's going to do it. But you say, hey, Mark Amtower is going to be in this chat room at 10 a.m. That should get people there. So you have to have networking with a purpose. You can't well, I'm
1: I'm glad you think it'll get people there, <laughs> because <But, laughs> I I was going to ask, you know, how does one start conversations there? And that that's one of the things that I like. You know, Luann uh, Brosman uh, has tasked me with doing uh, most of the Tuesdays for the ideation call. So what I do is take a topic. Instead of talking about it for 15, 18 minutes, I talk about it for five minutes. And then I pick people, literally, who are attending and say, Give me your feedback here. What are your thoughts? So
0: I think that is a great way to do it. It's hard to get organic engagement in a virtual environment, but the way you structure your presentations, the way you structure your chats, having open ended discussions you know using polling that's a great technology to use in a virtual environment polling that gives the speaker some idea of the sentiment in the room it gives them some data to work with then it allows them to ask the audience questions having people that you know mark you can call on directly is great too but that's the type of kind of what i call structured engagement or structured networking it's kind of getting that conversation going and then you start moderating it from right. It's
1: priming you. the pump. Yeah. Yeah. If people still remember what that is, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, we won't go there. Um, so, um, the exhibitors and these things, you know, these things do not pay for themselves. Most of the events, uh, in our market or a great number of the events in our market. Are exhibitor-driven sponsorships, uh, physical booths, that sort of thing. Are you seeing fewer exhibits in in the larger events? Are you seeing more single sponsorships? What's are there any trends here?
0: Yeah, th- there's a mix of it. Um, I, I think from a media organization, you know, we definitely see the multi-sponsor, multi-vendor type virtual events. And, um, you know, the benefits of virtual in that arena are reporting and metrics and ROI metrics. Um, There's so much that can be tracked in a virtual environment uh, platform right now. So, you know, normally if you're doing, you know, a conference track in a virtual summit, you're obviously going to get that attendee list and the registration. But what you're also going to get in most of these platforms, or you should be asking for this type of reporting is, What's that level of engagement? So I can look at my engagement report and say, all right, Mark went to these three webinars. He downloaded five of my case studies, two of my white papers. With that level of engagement reporting, I know much more about, Mark, what your engagement, what your level of intent is, and I can probably do a better follow-up with you knowing what you're interested in. If you're in there kicking tires and just want to learn more about cloud, I'm not going to hit you up with a very strong marketing message. I'm not going to bother you because it's clearly you're in the discovery phase. But if I see you went down a content uh, rabbit hole on certain areas, I want the right person following up with you. It's be better for you. It's be better for the organization. So that vendor involvement is super important in the virtual environment, whether it's a sole sponsor or multi sponsor. What you lose from the in person is that one to one networking and relationship building you get in person but what you can get in the virtual environment is much more uh, engagement data that helps you really build out and understand the intent of each user. And I think that's undervalued and underrepresented uh, when you're talking to platforms is what is your metrics and tracking capabilities? That value you can provide uh, either for us to sponsor or when a company's putting it on themselves, that level of data and engagement I, I think really does pay the price of of these platforms, whatever that cost may be.
1: Okay. Anecdotally, are you getting feedback from vendors that participate that their sales or BD staff like these leads don't like these leads are following up? Are they connecting on LinkedIn? Are they having a zoom chat with them? Anecdotally, what, what
0: have you been hearing? It's a, it's a mixed bag to be honest. Um, You know, some love them. You know, we have folks that keep coming back to us and doing more now Others, you know, there's a lot of traditional sales that, that if it's not in person, it didn't happen, uh, which I understand. You know, so I think it's a mixed bag. I think over time and when you start tracking lead success, you know, anytime this data goes into a CRM, you know, two questions I always ask. Were you able to bring in all the engagement data that we provided you into your CRM to follow that? Um, very rarely do we hear this was a bust. We're never doing it again. I think the marketing community has taken to it. I think there's a certain level of education between marketing and sales that has to happen uh, in terms of how to use the reporting. Um, but I think overwhelmingly it's it's been positive. But you're always going to have a few naysayers that say, you know, I have to be in person. And I don't disagree with that. It's just not a reality right now.
1: Well, that- I don't. It, is it going to be a reality going forward? I mean, I, yes, live events will occur again sometime the question is when and are they going to be like they were before
0: i think it's a great question and it's something we we visit daily Um, (laughs) i bet you (laughs) do my opinion is and there's not a lot of science behind this is we're not going back to pre-march 2020 days in in in-person events will they come back they will come back in some form eventually is it q1 of 2021 q2 i don't know the one thing i think that we're not looking at closely enough is for our community what do our government community what do they prefer i don't think there's a lot of folks in government saying oh i wish there was more in-person events
1: yeah i i I, I miss getting on the subway and yeah you know
0: (laughs) so even if restrictions and when restrictions are lifted have they found more value in virtual or or has the pendulum swung that way, you know, more so? Mm-hmm. Um, is there going to be a place where it's more hybrid events and maybe you have a smaller in-person setting that's then, you know, um, repackaged for a, a much larger digital distribution? Yeah. The one piece with virtual too that we forget is when you go virtual, you've now expanded your reach. You can get outside the beltway. You can exactly. reach beds in Denver you, you know so it levels a little bit of the playing field and reach and access too. so I don't think we're going back to the way it used to be
1: yeah and and my other thing is if part of the new normal, and I think it will be is telework at least on a an occasional or a regular basis. Making your events accessible to those people who are going to be working at home, you know, a standard two days a week kind of thing um, would be a must. They ain't leaving their house to go to an event.
0: I read somewhere, and I don't want to say, I, I'm going to get it wrong. So I, I read a really good article recently about DoD and virtual events and basically saying, for the events that they've put on, like for vendor days, that they much prefer the virtual environment now and may stick with that going forward because more vendors can participate. It's an ease of access. It's less travel. It's less cost. So I think we're gonna we're gonna face some of that as well. But I I just think in person events are never going to go away. But maybe that pendulum is gonna shift more towards virtual or or hybrid.
1: Okay. Well, we're going to take our final break here. Uh, you're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Doug Mashkuri. You can find Doug on LinkedIn or at GovLoop.com, and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Doug meshkury And this this is kind of funny, Doug. Uh for the last couple of months, I've been doing shows via Ring Central. I've never done a remote show prior to the COVID crisis. So for the last three months, I'm sitting here in my home office. You're probably in your home office and we're doing literally a virtual event. Um, <laughs> just a little ironic, um, <laughs> especially given the topic. But, you know, when, when you're in a studio with me, boom, there's a, a, I mean, we have a good rapport going right now. Yeah. But when it's face to face there there is a difference, and so I understand the sales people uh their their problems, but you know I'm sorry old time salespeople there is a new now, there is a new reality, and you can you can either you know join it or watch it as it sails away from you. Let's wrap up with uh, virtual event best practices. You had a wonderful list of those. At the uh, on the ideation call and which also by the way is a virtual event three days a week
0: yeah let, let's jump into it this is not an exhaustive list and it's not in any any particular order uh, as I was pulling together for the ideation call um, I, I wrote my stuff down and then I, I pinged my staff at like 10 p.m that night uh, and got some other input so there's no no order or priority to this but a couple things that we've talked about earlier, and it's important, you know, function over form. We gotta serve our target audience in the way they want to access our content. And, you know, once again, I keep calling it content because everything we do is content, whether it's virtual, in-person events, written word, it's all content and it's in different forms. And I think understanding the government community and how they want to experience this content is important. That doesn't mean you need to take you know, all the bells and whistles we talked about earlier. If that's going to get in the way and distract from content delivery, get rid of that. So focus on the function of what you want to present. We talked about this earlier, tech issues. Assume they're going to happen, be okay with it, and figure out how to fix it. You are not going to have a flawless tech environment regardless of platform. What? <laughs> Believe it or not, there's just... Too many variables. And especially now that we're all remote, I love that people can ask questions. And you can address most of them. But you know, you're know, you now dealing with 500 different configurations. Uh, the chance that that's all going to work, it's not going to happen. But be cool with it. You know how to fix it. Have your team and your support ready uh, to, at minimum, respond immediately when someone puts out, I can't hear or can't see. They want you you need to acknowledge it like hey I'm sorry you experienced difficulties try this try that so if you can respond quickly you've won half the battle of customer service manage engagement expectations of a virtual event versus an in-person event and this goes back to managing internally and externally um, you know your your VP of sales would be like I don't want to touch this virtual stuff this is not how we do it or your chief marketing officer may be like this is not how we've done it in the past Mark, you said earlier, there's a new reality. The new reality is we're all virtual, um, but understanding and educating internally how virtual events work, how you engage, what you can measure, what you want to get out of it, super important. Don't wait for the day of the event to set those expectations. You can have a very unhappy staff if you do that. You mentioned this earlier, prep calls uh, are so yeah, critical. Yeah,
1: man, um, uh, especially for somebody is not, technical as me.
0: <laughs> and both for content and technology, having that prep and having everyone on the same line is important. And it shouldn't be the morning of or the day of. It needs to be one to two weeks in advance. And if you have to have because if there's a configuration issue, you have time to fix it. You you can get everyone comfortable because the last thing you want is a speaker unprepared or a speaker nervous about the platform because you can take the best speaker and if something trips them up in the platform, they're off their game and that's gonna affect the content. So prep is super important. Um, content strategy, I talked about earlier, panel discussions, PowerPoint discussions, you know, how do we structure a good panel? Um, one thing that's super important now is panel diversity. Make sure you have a diverse panel. Don't have a panel of all white male, even if it is virtual, it matters. We need diversity in our panels. And diversity in how we present content is important. Super important is engagement tactics. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about like networking and how do you get the audience engaged? You know, have polls during the presentations. Have a robust and allow time for Q and A. Mark, you mentioned it earlier when you moderate. You talk for a small amount of time and then get the audience going. That's what we want. Uh, let's, let's
1: let's go back to that that moderation yeah. thing. Moderators need to be vetted too, vetted and trained. Yes, um, you know our our mutual buddy Dorobek has been a uh, a popular moderator for literally decades. Uh, but it's it's part art and and uh, part instinct. But I've seen moderators that just plain shouldn't. I was going to use another word, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, moderation and effective moderation are, are super important. They're setting the tone. They're the ones that have to keep the program moving forward, keep the audience engaged. You can have a super smart thought leader be a moderator, but they might not be engaging. Uh, and that's what you don't want. You need someone that can understand the topic, but more importantly, understand the audience and how to keep things moving along. Uh, that, a boring moderator equals a boring session. Yeah, we, and, but seen it.
1: The, when, when you get the, uh, and, and this happens more in live events, it, tell me if it happens in virtual, but the uh, the person that raises their hand asks a question, but it's not a question. It's a three-day story. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not known for tact. Uh, So I don't have a tremendous problem with just cutting somebody off and say, if you have a question, ask it. If you're telling a story, you know, wait until the break and find somebody who will listen. But you know, right now all you're doing is sucking up all the air.
0: Yeah. And you know, I, have learned in in in-person events and I'm monitoring, never let go of the microphone because once someone (laughs) gets that, you you can't get it back. Virtual is a little different and that's where, you know, open chat versus closed chat you can have different things uh, happen with an open chat type environment it's unmoderated so you could have people that are trolling folks um you know the good thing is it's not audio it's, it's type so you can kind of just skip over that but you can okay. be careful of yeah. open chat um i'm a big fan of polls and robust q a um, because then you can see the, the questions coming in in your module and pick the top priority questions. There might be some that are just rabbit hole questions that you don't want to get into. So with a moderated Q&A, you can really drive strong engagement, but also control the flow of of the session, which is important. Okay. Last thing, uh, a couple closing points, um, engagement tracking and metrics. I mentioned earlier, understanding what you can track, and you can track so much in a virtual environment Makes you smarter as a provider. You can better understand your audience. You can better understand what they gravitated towards and why, what the depth, why they were there that day, what they were interested in. And the more you can kind of create a digest of that engagement, the more value it's going to be to any organization that does virtual events. Um, Last one I want to mention is customer service. And there's three layers of customer service in a virtual event there's pre event. The moment someone registers, Um, That should not be the last you talk to them before the event. You need them to, uh, once they're registered with confirmation emails, talk a little about the environment and what they're going to experience when they come in that day. It can be very new to people and overwhelming, so giving them some baseline. Customer service during, you're not going to solve all tech problems, but acknowledging tech problems and trying to help is very important. It shows a level of engagement and commitment to the community. And then after, the beauty of a virtual event is you have all this content that's now available on demand. Use it to your advantage. You can re-promote it, push it out to new audiences. All that is existing there, and it's something real and tangible that folks can use well beyond that event date. So those are my best practices, my friend.
1: Man, this is just a a wonderful uh, uh, laundry list of everything you need to know about virtual and picking and partnering with or selecting a vendor partner. Uh, Doug, thanks, man. Always a fun time talking to you. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having
0: me on. I appreciate
1: it. My pleasure, dude. Um, This is not my day job. I do advise companies on all aspects of marketing to the government. And one of the reasons I, I maintain... Uh, close relations with people like Doug Mesh Curry is if I don't know an answer, I know people that do know the answers. So I'm very, very good at uh, social selling, LinkedIn, uh, developing a content strategy and building a subject matter expert platform. But when you get beyond a lot of things, if you have questions and call me, I'll aim you at subject matter experts across the market. So, uh, Doug, again, thank you for being in that inner circle of mine. And thank you for listening to Amtower Off-Center.
0: You've been listening to Amtower Off-Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.